My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today I am joined by Lafayette Lee. Um, he is an anonymous poster, a father, um, ex-military. There's not that much more information about him. He is a man of mystery, as some some of my guests are. Um, he is also the author of um, Ruins.substack.com, a very good Substack, a very good Substack name that I'm already jealous of. <laughs> Welcome, Lafayette Lee. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I've been following your your work, your tweets, your posts for a while. Um, uh, I'm a fan, and I think uh, it's it's an interesting time to be someone in the U.S. who is, uh, as far as I understand, you're not in the military anymore. You've served, and now you're um, in reserve, or I don't exactly know how how these things work. Yeah, no, I uh, I got out of the military several years ago. Um, I was in for altogether with within active and national guard time. I was in for almost a decade, so um, got out fairly recently. Um, and trying to navigate the world as a civilian now, it's been quite the adventure. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, I mean, given given the things you speak about, uh, and you know your awareness of uh, of of what's going on in terms of the the so-called globalist American empire, I I wonder how you see your uh, your time in the military, kind of looking back with uh, the eyes of today, with you know everything you've gone through and and what you've learned. Like, how do you feel about essentially having served under a, a regime that might not necessarily be interested in, in in the best for you or essentially the people you represent? Yeah, no, that's, you know, this is something I talk about with a lot of my uh, close friends who have a similar experience. Um, and I, I don't think that this, b- because of the interests of this regime, it's not a conversation that I think uh, gets a lot of attention um, purposefully. But there are a lot of veterans who uh, came off of this global war on terror who um, have quite, you know, ha- have have changed their perspective quite a bit just given their own experience alone and what they've seen um, that, you know, it, it creates kind of a, it, I don't know, there's a, a really strong tension, I guess you could say, between, you know, a, a very strong loyalty to what many of us see as our country, our homeland, right? Our, the people that we, we believed that we were serving and protecting. I think most people who join the military, there's kind of a there, you know, there's a lot of people that will join the military for benefits and for, um, you know, though that gets a lot of attention, you know, with this recruitment crisis, uh, that that seems to be at the forefront of everybody's minds is how we can incentivize these people. But, you know, those of us who joined when the, there was fighting still, um, you know, we joined most of the people I knew, we we joined because we felt like we needed to protect something you know, maybe the near and dear, uh, protect something at home, you know, even though there, you know, even though like 9-11 was something that happened in New York, 
you know, it was felt throughout the nation. And that's a memory that many people in my, in my same position, it felt very, you know, very acutely. Um, but, you know, over the course of serving, and I think I've, I've said this many times before, you know, as much as um, many of our contemporaries who never served uh, <laughs> have a particular disdain for the global American empire, many of us who served in the military saw behind the curtain first. So um, this sense of disillusionment is something that many of us felt years ago, but we were still able to hold on to certain things um, to continue on. You know, I think everyone who went downrange, I, I went on a, several deployments and I know, you know, there are other people out there who've been on, you know, I know some people have been on 10 deployments. Um, the, the, the disillusionment sets in fairly early. So many of the people that have served even in harm's way and, they they knew that they weren't things were not necessarily what they had seemed when they joined, but they still did it anyway, and they still served with distinction, uh, courage, and and a lot of that came from a loyalty, um, kind of the fraternity that you have with those that you serve, and knowing that, you know, and still being willing to fight under that flag. So I mean, there's these things that are not as yeah, they're, they almost are intangible to a lot of people, but they're things that kept, at least for me, it kept me motivated and it kept me, um, it kept me in. Uh, but, you know, coming out and I think with what we've seen recently, you know, that there is a, it's beyond a crisis within the political bureaucracy. It's a crisis that is a national crisis, I would say. And it kind of calls into question a lot of a lot of the old assumptions that many of us had, even even at uh, the height of our disillusionment while we were in the military, you know, like what is this country of ours? Does it still exist? You know, can we even call it a patria? <laughs> you know, um, who are we serving? Are you know most people? Most people, like I said, that I know, felt like they were protecting or serving their friends and neighbors. I mean, I I, I think there's a lot of folks that will denigrate you know, military service today and assume that there's always some kind of either, you know, fantasy behind it, or there's just a, a self-interest for benefits. But I, I will tell you from my own personal experiences, there was a definite sense of our homeland was attacked. We want to protect our people, our friends, our neighbors, our communities. And I feel like that was the most noble aspect of it. But I think even now, a lot of people like me, veterans, or even those who are in, are call, are starting to question whether even that you can even say that anymore. Yeah. Sorry for the long-winded answer there, but <laughs> no, no, it, it makes sense, and it kind of highlights this divide that I kept seeing creep up in in conversations about this, and you know the the dissident right or whatever circle is called now. Uh, it's the divide between essentially being a warrior and being a warrior in service of whatever empire and that these two things were not necessarily the same thing. So uh, there was kind of the, the, the going um, to protect the, the, the homeland or, you know, you know, we speak in these terms of, of tribes or communities and this is just a completely natural, normal phase of almost like just being a male and wanting to do these things. Uh, the, the problem that people like that face now is that, the only open gigs are, you know, for people who essentially hate you, uh, which is kind of the separate aspect of it. So there's this kind of roaring discussion at one point that, you know, uh, is it even worth it being, you know, being a warrior? Should you just kind of become 
like I know pirate outlaw and just move to the global south and I don't know, <laughs> father seven thousand children, <laughs> or, or something, something like that. I don't know, but it's it was an interesting discussion. I don't know enough about it personally to to say, uh, but yeah, it's uh, there's clearly something to the to being a warrior, to being to going off to war, to protecting, to you know, there are noble things to it, there are wild things to it. I don't know exactly what you know. Which how the split is in the appeal of these things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I you know there's definitely that that's a big part of it, and I think that that that's something that should have more attention uh, is that you know males today, you know it's there's there's definitely a, a a need for I think men or boys who are becoming men to prove themselves to go through certain rites of passage, and the military is is by all you know by all means is very much like that especially if you have an opportunity to go fight or you have an opportunity to put your life on the line. Um, you know, there's a lot of this, it, it's, you know, it, it drives me crazy. I, I don't even watch, I, I really don't watch like any war movies for the most part. They just, I, I just can't hang with it. <laughs> it's like a lot of them are, are probably closer to like Marvel movies to me, but there it's, um, you know, there's this, there's like kind of this anti-war it's like this residue left over from the 1960s from a very different war in a lot of ways, um, a very different time. But, um, you know, there's always like this, you know, there's always this point trying to be made is that, you know, war is always bad and war is always terrible. And, and war might always be terrible and it might always be destructive. I mean, we know this, but there it, it's it's been with us from the beginning and this is one of those things that we you know i'm not a utopian i don't believe that you can just you know this is it's just as pie in the sky as saving the planet or or world peace is we will war will always be with us and you know i've heard it said it's the father of us all um and the best i mean for for a young man i mean there is that that warlike tendency the, there's those things that aspiration for greatness to prove oneself and these are, you know, societies and cultures for, for, from the beginning until fairly recently, this was understood as, as things that needed to be cultivated rather than uh, plucked out, uh, not cured out of the individual, but something that needed to be cultivated. Um, and when it was cultivated correctly, that you could, you know, you could have those more noble conflicts. You could trust the men at arms to protect you. I mean, I really do think the most noble I mean, there are noble wars, and I'd say, you know, noble wars are those that you, where you are defending your homeland, you're defending your the people you know, the way of life that you that you love and cherish. I mean, that is, I mean, at the essence, that's every story of every great civilization that we aspire to as Americans. I mean, I think that there's a definite direct line from, you know, our founding generation, how they viewed the Romans. But, you know, it wasn't just that they viewed the Romans at their height you know, in the empire, that wasn't what they were aspiring to. They were aspiring to the yeoman Roman, you know, republic that saved Rome from, from Carthage, you know, and that's how they looked at, that's how they looked at that time period. It was that very, that same kind of conflict and that, you know, to, to be a virtuous man, you know, this is kind of our, our national inheritance is to be a patriotic man, to be a good and virtuous man was to balance that warlike tendency with your commitment to your hearth and home and to protect those things, that they were fundamentally related, that if you could not protect your hearth and home, you couldn't really call yourself a man. 
Yeah. What, what's your feeling about calling yourself a, a patriot now, just giving, uh, given the nature of the, of the, the patria and uh, it's, 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 I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, it's a hard thing. You know, what, what do you relate to when you think about yourself as a patriot? Uh, that's a great question. And this is the tension that I have a lot of the time, um, just generally, but also within the dissident, right? Um, I would call myself a patriot. Um, I'm an American. I'm my, my family has been here since 1635, um, and have, you know, been engaged in every major conflict that involved this country. Um, I do have a very different perspective on history than I would say most Americans do. I, I'm a student of history. I'm not, you know, classically or professionally trained here. I'm just a, a country bumpkin who likes to read books, but, um, I, I take a very different approach to certain historical events, but I can still call myself a patriot. And one of the, and the reason why I can still do that, where I think would benefit a lot of, um, you know, Americans who are on the dissident right or flirting with that side of things where they, they feel that disillusionment with maybe, you know, your conservatism Inc. And, and, you know, your American conservative movement, um, there, you know, America, the, the thing to understand about patriotism for me is that it is, it is, it is a connection to the near and dear. It is not an attachment to lofty ideals. It has to be embodied somewhere. And this is, this is a national tension. So, you know, by saying this, I'm recognizing that, you know, our nation has been at war between these two versions of patriotism from, from almost the beginning. And, you know, this is, this is a sensibility that you'll find at least where I'm coming from is a lot more prominent in the South, but in understanding that your, your, your connection, you know, you cannot transcend your own national history. You cannot transcend that. And there's an attempt on the left almost always, but there's starting to be one on the right where a desire to kind of transcend your, that national history to be able to free yourself from all of that baggage and to cling to some higher ideal. And I would say this is the folly of the left. This is how patriotism has been divorced from the country, where now you can have somebody supposedly fighting for <laughs> their country, uh, but they're really just fighting for gay rights in Ukraine, or they might be fighting for, you know, they're fighting for equality abroad. They're not, there's no connection to the people back home. There's no connection to that, the, you know, the customs and the, and the mores and the, and the way of life that, that you come from. And so I call myself a patriot because I connect those things fundamentally to something embodied. And that is to the people that I come from. It's to my neighborhood. It's to the land I love. It's to the national story that I'm a part of, that my ancestors were a part of. That is my kind of patriotism. But the lofty kind of Lincolnian, you know, you know, all men are created equal, you know, ideals. That's not my kind of patriotism. You know, I actually think that that's a fundamental error. And I know that that's probably not a direction you want to go, but, you know, we've had these national transformations before. And um, that period of time in the United States when it was, you know, the war between the states was really kind of a battle over those two versions of patriotism. And, and the one that won out, I think we are watching a lot of the baggage and the follies of that. Uh, it's almost too hard to, to ignore. And so I guess if I had any kind of, and this is where I go with my Substack and on Twitter, is that I think that people should re-examine patriotism, but they need to re-examine patriotism by stepping a slightly outside of the Lincoln lens 
They need to view patriotism as their maybe even their forefathers viewed it at the beginnings of this nation. And, and that's how I can still retain a level of patriotism, even as my government has become what it is. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's essentially a big theme on the show as well, that, you know, one of the kind of the, the linchpins and, and the folly of, of liberalism is, uh, is you know, this all, you know, all men are created equal taken, you know, to kind of a, a rationalistic, uh, you know, extreme where it's actually, you know, the, the expectation is that all men are equal at the end. That's the result we're, we're aiming for. Uh, mm. And even when, you know, bring conservative, cons- you know, conning in here and they say, oh, you know, it's, it's just a equality of opportunity. That takes about five minutes to collapse into equality of outcome when people realize that there is no equality of outcome. Like you can't have, a, you know, a democratic system where, you know, group politics is extremely salient. Minority politics is super salient. It swings elections without moving, you know, into the direction of equality of outcome. Like, duh, <laughs> there's nothing really to say about that. So, you know, any system that promises this and promises to kind of plunder public coffers for the advantages to buy the advantage of, you know, votes from X and Y community. You know, how long do you think that can can last? You know, any any cool headed observer will see that that's, you know, has about five minutes of of uh, of lifespan on it. And I think it, it worked, I think, in, in the U.S. and in the West for so long because there's a lot of ruin in such a rich nation. Um, just enough money to buffer the insanity. But I think now things are starting to to have problems at, you know, the fundamental level, like the bridges, the wars, the things that you, you know, the infrastructure, electricity, uh, fuel, things like that are starting to to fray in a very, you know, significant way. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, it's just, yeah, the bill is coming for all of this excess. No, absolutely. You know, it's something I puzzle over all the time because, you know, I uh, two things that strike me as really interesting about this time period because that we're all living through, which, you know, I... I don't want to sound like a doomer. I'm I'm actually I'm a perennial optimist. Believe it or not, I, I do have a lot of. I we live in a very dangerous but exciting time, and I guess you can't really have, you know, excitement without the danger and vice versa. But you know, this is a very interesting time. And what, two things I've seen that I think are that I think should we should take pause and and kind of consider a little. You know, it take it took a very long time, and. and Granted, I'm not excusing the injustices of the past. I mean, we there has been a lot of blood spilt on this continent um, over these fights in the past, long before we were born. Um, but you know, we it took this long for what I would say is for the for the whole thing to start to come breaking and crashing down. You know, we've been in a state of decline for a little while here, but you know, it's it's taken a really long time. And you know, there's several explanations for that, but I've always believe that, you know, there's something special about Americans. And that's kind of goes back to this patriotism is like it's and conservatives tend to really lean hard on the Constitution. And and as you know, I have a lot a great deal of respect for the Constitution and how it was developed um, and where it came from. But I do think there's a lot of misperceptions about what the Constitution was, what it is, and, and what its use is today. But I think a lot of folks, especially conservatives, will put a lot of stock into the Constitution alone, and they forget that the Constitution was very much an effort, it, it kind of an echo of like a Roman, a, a Roman uh, sensibility of creating a level of balance that would protect the social fabric, and this dynamic, exceptional social fabric. And I, I've seen that 
despite all of the bad things that are happening, the bad things that this regime is doing to its own people, uh, you know, there's just so much looting and demoralization and um, acts of betrayal just over and over against this beleaguered population. (laughs) But I'm just amazed that despite the most sophisticated propaganda machine, despite all the looting, despite the demoralization, despite the impoverishment of communities that were once, you know, thriving, that there's still this large number of Americans that are holding on, that they're still pushing back, that they're still resisting, that they still reject the legitimacy of what's being done. And I think that that's something you can't overlook. It actually gives me a lot of hope because, you know, I see history in cycles. I don't really view it as this linear progression. I don't know how you could at this point, but, you know, we are in a cycle here, and this is not unlike other crises that we have actually gone through in the past. And to see this group of Americans that will still push back, authentically push back. And I'm, you know, you're not going to find this obviously in the halls of power. You're not going to find this within the cathedral, but you're going to find it out in the hinterlands where millions of people that work with their hands just do not accept this. <laughs> they don't want to live this way. And that to me is very inspiring. Um, that to me is what I believe that is the heart of what it makes America truly great to me that why I am proud to belong to this, to this nation. It's a tradition that spans back all the way to the beginning. And I'm, I'm very pleased to see that it hasn't been stamped out entirely. Yeah. And I feel like at least, you know, maybe it's also kind of my myopia because I'm, I'm in these circles, but I feel like there's, there's an elite movement happening as well. Um, where, you know, kind of the so-called client class exists and they're, I think, growing in numbers just given the state of the world. Uh, but I think there are quite a lot of elites that could, um, that are switching sides, hopefully. Mm-hmm. That's that's the promise. Um, because, I mean, just, just com- I'm coming from a completely different place. I mean, I'm one of these, in a way, kind of aspirational, you know, nobody's from from eastern europe you know just went to school um and then yeah i don't know if i'm like a western elite or anything if i made it uh but it's you know just just looking from the outside in um there are things that are attractive and interesting and they're not happening on the left like yeah the, the old halls of power if you really want to you know elbow your way into um i don't know whatever ivy league schools and things like that you probably have to, yeah, mouth the platitudes. But I feel like they're, they're just at the point where the level of sophistication that their platitudes have reached and the level of um, baroqueness that all of these, you know, declarations have reached are, is so stupid to people who actually, you know, you know have, a, have a little bit of a brain <laughs> that, that it just can't, like the, the sexiness of this, this culture cannot continue. And it moves very fast as well because, you know, this isn't a, a culture or like um, a regime that's transmitted via newspapers or something. Like all of this flows extremely fast through the internet. Uh, and these preference cascades can happen very, very fast and at a level that is really unprecedented. Um, and, you know, elites, you know, every everyone can flip quite fast. And we've seen this in in the fact that, you know, the slippery slope has gotten very slopey recently. Like, um, you know, uh, left leftward winds have, you know, increased in speed and exactly, I mean, who would have thought that, you know, they'd be 
mutilating children 10 years ago. But this is also kind of a byproduct of the internet. You know, all the stuff like bloomed on on Tumblr and things like that. And now it's in, in the mainstream. But it can also go the other way. Like madness, you know, every effect has a has a, a backlash. And I feel like something's brewing. Like this, this really can't go on. Obviously, this isn't like a prophecy or anything, but it just looks like that from someone who, you know, could have, you know, tried to really, you know, break my neck and get into the Ivy League. It just doesn't look good. Like, I don't want to rub sh- like shoulders with these people, you know? So I think maybe other people see it that way as well. No, I, I think you're right. I, you know, I do subscribe to kind of the elite theory of you things. Well, you know, my people are every, you know, are the, the everyday American types who I, I, you know, I live in a community where most people work with their hands. I have a great deal of respect for people that work close to the land, people that work with their hands. There's a level of dignity that gets denied that I think is very important and actually is, is an anchor to our society in a lot of ways that keeps us from floating away when we have, when our elites are off chasing, you know, El Dorado. But I do, I do subscribe more to that elite theory. And I believe that I believe you. I believe you're exactly right, and I've seen it myself. Is I've, you know, I've, I've, uh, <laughs> I've gone between these circles, between you know, elite circles um, at some of the highest levels of, uh, of you know, governance, and also you know, down <laughs> in a place where you know most people live, you know, very, very just slightly above the poverty line, and um, you know, like I said, work with their hands. I've you know, traversing these two worlds has been very interesting to me. And I, I've just seen it on the elite side of things. I have absolutely seen this where there are a lot of people that are reevaluating where they want to go that, you know, the career path that they thought that they had when they were younger, maybe when they took on all that debt or when they started their schooling, uh, just it is not it's either closed to them or it, it's not what they thought. It demands too much. And. I've seen this too, and I, I find that that's what's so fascinating about the dissident right. It's probably what attracted me very, you know, to Twitter and to all the different personalities that we all interact with. There, there's there are a lot of very intelligent, you know, highly educated people, and many of them are also in, in you know, in their own impressive career tracks. But for some reason, they are dissenting, and I think that this is. I think if there is any hope, it will be uniting these two groups together. And I find that Twitter sometimes does that. It's I I have a following. I have a following within the dissident right of uh, folks that like to talk about theory and things like that. But I also have a big following with people that, like I said, work with their hands, that they're on Twitter just to, you know, speak their mind, get something off their chest. And I, I believe the merging of these two worlds where the dissent is real, where the problems that they are observing are real. I think that that's really important. And I know that you had Curtis Yarvin on your, your podcast the other day, and I've, I've enjoyed reading his work and listening to him. But I, I think he understands that, that that connection is really important. And whoever can solve that problem on getting these two groups on the same page. And I don't think that I don't believe that mass movements necessarily can govern, you know, lead themselves and govern themselves. You have to have an elite class. But in the past, we haven't seen that elite class, an elite class that has any loyalty to this group form. But we're starting to see a sense of loyalty, a sense of like ownership and responsibility that's, I think, emerging within some of these nascent elite circles. And I'm just I'm very excited to see where that goes in the future. Yeah, I think once, um, you know, elites like, you know, Blake Masters or, you know, people, people in in that vein are starting to to signal their loyalty in in much more explicit terms. Like he was talking about, um, you know, 
essentially, yeah, anti-white racism and things like that, which <laughs> literally is not is not dinner table conversation. Any of the the dinners that he might have been invited to, but apparently now it is because he's brought it up, and that's clearly a sign of okay. You, I, I am taking you on as my as my client class. You know, mm-hmm. I the the like literally Roman Tribune looking guy <laughs> <laughs> will take you on as my client class. And there's still quite a lot of people in that client class. I mean, in Arizona as well, but still, you know, I'm sure his his ambitions are even even larger. So, yeah, and and he's not the only one. And it, it's becoming much more. Um, allowable to signal to these to these classes to this whole group, uh, and not just this group. I think you know there there are people of of other races as well who are a bit tired of uh, of being pandered to in in the most obscene way, and you know being bombarded with all sorts of. I, I don't know if you know the average you know black mom wants to trans their children or something like that, mm-hmm. or like his, Hispanic women are interested in stuff like that. It's just piling up too high, I think, uh, on on the Democrat side. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that this this is something I've been observing. And, you know, I live in a community that, you know, I guess, you know, and, and especially like these southern communities are have a diversity that extends way back before the, even the country existed. So, you know, and I think that there's a there's kind of a stigma that well, there's always been a stigma Um that I think is more used to excuse the sins of, of, of folks who live in other parts of the country than, than really is as close to reality. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of these people, you know, we have very diverse communities all over the country. And I, I completely agree. I think what we've seen is in the past that the Democrat coalition has been able to mobilize people on a basis of like racial identity. And that, that worked for a period of time but it's starting to come apart. And there's several reasons for that. I think one of those is you, you can't really tell me that, you know, an, in, uh, you know, a Brahmin Indian from, you know, who has been in this country for just a couple of years and works in the tech sector can, has, has the, you know, has the, the same kind of interests as somebody who grew up, you know, who's the descendant of slaves in this country. You know, you can't tell me that, 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 that national past, that history, that, that they, they really have any kind of, um, ownership over that. And yet with the, with the legal structure that we have, right, with the civil rights acts is the way that they are, is that we're, you know, we're packing more and more groups into, um, into this, this legal framework that was really intended for one group of people for one specific reason. And I just don't think that that's sustainable. It doesn't work. And it's hard to promise, you know, and you're seeing this already happening in, in elite institutions is that a lot of the, a lot of these a lot of these, you know, benefits, I guess you could say, that come along with that legal, that legal apparatus are not being extended to, you know, black Americans who are the descendants of slaves. They're being extended to, to, you know, what the left would call privileged uh, immigrants who are coming over to the country. And, you know, obviously they're not going to turn down opportunities and that's, you know, makes sense. But that is becoming politically unsustainable. That single narrative to describe you know, the oppressor oppressed. I just don't think it works. And it doesn't work when you have double digit inflation and when you have gas prices that hurt everyone. Um, and I, I've long said that I think that this Democrat coalition is going to fall apart. The question for me is what, whether the opposition can seize the opportunity to take advantage of this and to, and to put in, I guess, to do their very best to make sure that the damage that has been done by this coalition 
across the country that there's that there's some way to prevent this from happening again to make sure that this is the end of that chapter. And I don't think that the Republican establishment has any you know inclination to do that, but I think people like Blake Masters, Joe Kent, JD Vance, I think they see that and I think they're willing to go there. Yeah, I mean, one of the the more prominent arguments on our side is kind of the you know the the, the Christopher Caldwell. Um, I think Richard Hanani has also kind of been talking about this, the idea that um, it's going to be very hard to push back on wokeness just because it is essentially wokeness derives from uh, taking the civil rights at its word, and it, it all kind of flows out of that because you essentially kind of have the the uh, legal doctrine of disparate impact. And mm-hmm. whenever you have disparate impact, uh, you know, that that bloomed, you know, across, you know, gender discrimination. Um, and yeah, now whenever you can bring a, a, a table and show, you know, look at look at this uh, Excel sheet that I have, look at these dimensions that I've isolated, there's disparate impact. Uh, you have uh, legal leverage to impose your will uh, and to make that will politically salient because, you know, that's it. So essentially, whoever is the American Caesar, whoever the, the Caesar coalition is going to, to come, do you think they might need to, you know, uh, take it out in the backyard and, and shoot it? <laughs> well, <laughs> and, you know, yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, that's, and that's really a question. I think Caldwell and Hania, I've really enjoyed, you know, reading some of his thoughts on this. I'm, I'm impressed to see people going there. I mean, this has been something that, <laughs> A lot of Americans can sense that there's something wrong with this, <laughs> that it's <laughs> fundamentally what I would say would be un-American by the way that we understand that. Um, it's it's directly, it conflicts with, you know, it really conflicts with a lot of the 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 fundamental principles of, of how Americans treat law and how, you know, the tradition that we come from. And so to see Caldwell go there, I thought his book, Age of Entitlement, was fantastic. Um, and then to see other scholars go there, I think it's very important because, you know, I've said this for many times is that, you know, woke, you know, the, I agree with, with this assessment of the woke phenomenon is I don't really like when people compare it to a religion. Now I understand that there's religious impulses that animate it, but I don't like how it's portrayed as a religion because religion requires most religions. I mean, I belong to a pretty, I know I belong to a pretty high investment religion here and it requires a level of commitment and there a level of sacrifice. It requires something of the of the congregant, right? Um, that's the only way those these kinds of religions succeed. This is why progressive religions, when they attempt to like take over, you know, congregations or when they try to come up with these new age religions, they collapse within several years. They just don't thrive, and it's because they actually are rejecting commitments. They're rejecting the commitment that you have to this thing, and so. Woke would not survive. This woke phenomenon would not survive without a very sophisticated apparatus underneath it that delivered that delivered benefits, that delivered you know advancements, uh, prestige. These things are distributed through you know this apparatus that I talked about, and you know your ticket in you know to become a card carrying member, you have to you know signal your woke bona fides, and so. This is something that if you got rid of that system, if you were undermining it, their ability to deliver um, those spoils to their adherents, I don't think it would survive. It would probably experience the same kind of collapse that you see in these progressive attempts at creating their own religion. It just does not work. And 
And that's why I think it is important to take a look, a harder look at, you know, the, you know, the, <laughs> our, our new American founding, which started in 1964. Um, it's unsustainable, you know, underneath all that subcutaneous fat that we have on top of it, of all the silly HR games and all that nonsense, there is a bone and the bone is the law. And in, a, and in this country, we have a very strong legal tradition. I mean, there, I don't think that gets examined enough. The reason, aside from the, you know, dynamic, unique people that we have here is we also have a very impressive legal tradition. And that legal tradition is responsible for kind of holding together so much of our society. And what happened in 1964, whether you know well-intentioned or not, it, it kind of drove a hatchet right into the heart of that. And we are, I think we're living in the, in the death throes of that. So it, it's going to take a lot of political willpower. It's going to take a lot of people re-examining um, the past in a way that they'd never done before. Um, but I think that with the right kind of leaders and I think with the right kind of education, people will get there. And I hope that happens. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting history as well, because obviously, you know, uh, I, I I didn't know much about, you know, how, how civil rights was implemented. But, you know, if if uh, people can can look up, you know, the the kind of the first images that essentially were used just in, in newspapers of, of, of busing, of uh, you know, people just you know being led into into schools with uh, I guess rifles and and the police was escorting you know just moving populations from one school to another. It was uh, you know <laughs> you know you could call it civil civil rights or civil coercion. You know it, it wasn't a, a very peaceful process, and I and there were a lot of uh, of, of black schools as well who weren't that happy with the the forced integration. There was quite a lot of pushback from activists on the on on the black school side they had you know they had in their own system worked out in in many ways and 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 there are a lot of people resisting it so it's it's an interesting complex history that i also you know don't have the whole the whole picture of but it is definitely more nuanced than you know the the kind of the um, the, the short version where it's like you know it's just another level of freedom you know we freed them more freedom freedom for everyone there's a lot of coercion in some of that freedom. Yeah, no, and it's, you know, and I think the unfortunate thing that I don't think a lot of people realize is if they if they actually go back and read primary sources from that time period, um there were a lot there was a lot of criticism of the way things were going from all ends of the spectrum and and even among black Americans. Uh there was a belief by the time Martin Luther King was assassinated, there was a belief that the civil rights movement had failed and this wasn't coming from you know, segregationists on the on the right. This was coming from the black, you know, what people call today the black community is that there were a lot of black Americans who felt very dissatisfied that that what they had wanted had not been achieved and that they had and there were many costs associated that were put back on the backs of the same group of people that were supposedly being helped. And, you know, I think one of the thing one of the biggest casualties of that time period that a lot of people don't realize is that you know that it kind of marked the death knell of the black church as the as the locus of of what the black community is, and it and you see a reassertion or an assertion of of a of politics driven by a lot of demagoguery, which you know and and you know you don't even have to listen to me as you can look at the the decline of you can look at a lot of the statistics that come out and see what has happened to families, what has happened to community. You know these are things, and you know my heart goes out to my heart goes out to Americans of all stripes and walks of life from the damage done during the 1960s. 
Um, it was, you know, this was a, a, a legal revolution in many ways. It fundamentally changed a lot of longstanding institutions in this country that while imperfect and while there, you know, there were definite drawbacks and problems with it that we could talk about at length, um, there was something lost. And I think, you know, it was that organic material that is underneath the law. It's the invisible, intangible things that hold everything together. Um, many of those things were sacrificed and lost. And and really, if you look at some of the movers and shakers of that time, a lot of the lawmakers themselves, they put the burden on the most vulnerable populations. You know, you talked to earlier about, you know, Boston, South Boston. I mean, a lot of the the changes, the radical changes were not taking place in, you know, the communities of their of the elites of their day. It was being taken out on the common man, both black and white. And I think that that is a real tragedy that has been understudied. And, you know, in American history, you'll see this every time that there's like some new <laughs> founding. You know, I, I like I said, I look at this in cycles as you could go back to the American Revolution. You could see the Civil War as another war between the states is another example. Um, and then you can also see maybe the New Deal regime and then the civil rights movement. These are all periods that almost become apotheosized. You know, it's like this where they attain a level of like of religious sacredness and to question those or to even to identify some of the dissidents of the time and to give them credence is, is almost it's almost forbidden. And I think that I think that that's going to change. I think that there there's just too much weight and there's not enough support holding this thing up. Um, but yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, I think uh, I just want to make a recommendation for people if they're if you're curious about the 1960s and also especially about um, kind of dynamics around black churches and how politics seeped into it. The Martyr Made God Socialist uh, series. Very, very good. Uh, it's free. You can listen to it. It's wonderful. And it is about Jim Jones. Be surprised. Uh, I think. I think he mentioned this on my podcast when he was on. Uh, it's like, I think 80% of people who died at Jonestown were, were black Americans. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting tidbit. And it's a nice little, you know, teaser for, you know, getting to you into the, into the mindset of actually listening to it. Because it's a really long series, as he tends to do. Very ample, researched and, and, and wonderful series. And just, yeah, great, well, well narrated, wonderful. Um, and it it kind of goes through the history of um, black liberation, you know, um, yeah, Martin Luther King's makes an appearance there. Um, Malcolm X, like it's, it's an amazing series. And obviously, um, yeah, the whole history of Jonestown and, you know, why, why is he God socialist? Because he was essentially a political activist. Like the, the religious aspect of it was, was quite marginal, especially at the end. He was essentially, you know, um, bringing in uh, the, the new utopia in a political sense rather than a religious sense. I think he actually declared himself an, an atheist to the shock of many of his congregation who were like, mm, really? But then again, you know, they're still, they still hung around. Um, yeah, it's, 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 an, it's a crazy, absolutely crazy story. And yeah, people should look, look into it. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a really great series. And I, I think that that's something that I'm, I, I love these projects. And this is kind of one of those things on the dissonant ride or maybe, you know, close to it. This strange little corner that we find ourselves in is that there's, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of reexamination of history and and even even history that you know I think you know people have accepted as you know fact is but there's adding a lot more layers of of 
you know, of information, you know, this is like an onion you're peeling back. And I think a lot of people are starting to, to reexamine periods in time in which they just had had very little interest. And it really speaks to the condition that we're in today. So I, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that was a fantastic series. Yeah. I think, you know, once you realize that, you know, a few little puzzle pieces were absolute complete outright lies, then you start, you know, becoming a bit of a revisionist and, and listening to also, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there is, you know, a, a huge percentage of, you know, revisionism that's done. That's just, you know, again, kind of completely, you know, throwing things against the wall, seeing what sticks. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are, there are cranks who wrote books, you know, in the olden times and they had all sorts of weird ideas and we don't, we shouldn't take everyone seriously, but there is quite a lot of interesting stuff, a lot of interesting stuff that, was um, prescient and also predictive. And, you know, Thomas 777 obviously is the kind of the, the high priest of, of revisionism. He's also, you know, got all sorts of works. Uh, but uh, yeah, a lot of the stuff is being done. And uh, I don't, I don't want to say that, that Daryl or Martyr Maid is, is very revisionist, but it's very in-depth. So you're going to get all sorts of angles on it. Um, and yeah, there's, there's huge movement. I mean, I think a, a lot of people are inspired by Curtis Yarvin as well. Because, you know, once you, you kind of blow the, the lid off power and, you know, the narratives that, you know, supposedly power works this way, but actually it doesn't work that way at all, then that's really interesting to apply that lens to, to history. Um, and then, yeah, shock yourself every time saying, oh, actually, <laughs> this is what happened. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think there's a lot of, and there's, and, you know, there's, I, what I like that Curtis Yarvin does, and I, I don't. I, I agree with him on a lot, but there's a, there's several things with hi, you know history that, and this might just be like the old patriot in me. Is I, I have a hard time when somebody defends the Tories, but you know it's I enjoy listening to him. He, and what I think he does that is a good example is he he reads primary sources. Um, I think that that's really important in a moment like this is to read primary sources and to understand. And if you don't understand the primary sources, to find ways to you know augment that with other primary sources from the time so that you start to understand the language and the of the people you know we talked about earlier about the the founding of the country you know i take a very different approach on on how the founding came about um and and i feel like my position is supported but it's supported by primary documents it's supported by primary sources and you know there kind of comes this uh this point of telephone that we all we all kind of rely on the understanding of the generation before us or from the historians of our time and and like you said before, part of that is not just to try to really ascertain the truth of out of, you know, ascertain the truth from a historical event. A lot of times it's it's their attempts to to justify your interests in the current time. You know, like you'll see this all the time. It's the inco incoherence of the left, which I, I love it. I, I find it I, th I think it's enjoyable to watch. It's hilarious. But it's, you know, one minute you know, we need to measure up to the promise of the founding, which is equality for everybody, which, as you already identified, really just means equality of outcome for everyone. Um, but also, you know, the, the founding generation didn't really know anything. And so why should we be held to this, these founding documents that are so old, or, you know, these were authored by slave owners. And so there's also like a moral taint to this. And so, you know, and it's just this incoherence that and I think that it causes a lot of people to you know, obviously it makes no sense and it's difficult to hang with, but, you know, it makes a lot of people check out because it seems like it, it seems too convoluted and difficult to understand. And a lot of regular people will chalk that up to, they just don't have the training 
But I would argue, you know, it's not about the training. It's because it's hard to entertain an incoherent argument. <laughs> so I think consulting yeah. primary sources is excellent to do. Exactly. I mean, this is, we're essentially speaking from a position of being out of power. I mean, it's coherent to the left. That's the only thing they care about. Um, it's it's coherent in the sense that, you know, they know who is friend, they know who is enemy. Um, you know, they don't, they don't have to be. It's kind of like the whole free speech absolutism. Every, whenever you hear someone arguing for free speech absolutism, it's someone who's not in power, someone who's vying for, you know, for, for power and is being excluded by, by the mainstream. You know, he is enemy. And that's, that's why, you know, free speech is so important. You know, the, the left was arguing for free speech when they weren't in power, or at least the, the left that we have now wasn't in power. Um, and yeah, they were also kind of on the back foot. The second, the second you get power, you close the drawbridge, you know, there are no principles in, in the, in the ivory tower. Uh, it's just friend enemy, um, which, you know, is, is clear once you, once you realize that they really don't, I mean, you see this, there's a whole, you know, industry of kind of anti-woke centrism, IDW, Ben Shapiro people, essentially this is all they do. They point out left hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. They don't care. They, you don't you don't get measured by their standards. Like it makes sense from their perspective. So you know, I understand it's interesting, and there is a demographic that wants to see that. But you know, you know, it's it's not hypocrisy. It's it's hierarchy. <laughs> that's that's what it is. That, that, no, that's a great point. I think that what I would, and this kind of goes to like when I I get people that will DM me and ask, you know, what what is to be done, you know, and. You know, understanding and seeing the macro level problems, it can be, you know, dizzying. It can be really difficult for a regular person to know what to do. And, it, and there's a demoralization that comes along with that. I try to avoid that. I, I sometimes indulge in it and I, I really kick myself when I do. But I would, you know, this kind of what you were saying begs this, this point is that regular people have the ability to do something. And this is important to understand is that, and it, it might feel like it is sitting down in a room with Ben Shapiro and debating or, you know, <laughs> pointing out the left's hypocrisy. There might be some use to that, but it's very much, it's not at all as effective as living a, to, is living an ordered and, and healthy life. I mean, when we talk about hierarchy and when we talk about when, what the left was attacking the whole time wasn't just the right's ideas. It wasn't the establishment's ideas, right? It was they were attacking these invisible structures of order that have existed here for a very long time. Institutions that were being held together by tradition, by custom, by history, uh, by biology. I mean, the way that we have families and things like that. The left was always attacking that and the right misinterpreted that as they are just attacking the idea. So let's just talk about ideas. And it's not about ideas. What the the biggest threat to the left is you living a healthy, productive, God, in my opinion, God-fearing life and creating those and nurturing and cultivating those structures in your respective spheres of where you are. You know, I live in a small town. I don't suspect any of my neighbors or me are going to walk into Washington and change it. We're not going to save the we're not going to save the planet. We're not going to get out our pitchforks and we're not going to walk in and you know, force a force a regime change. But what we can do is that we have institutions that still are hanging on in our communities. We have neighbors. I have children. We have schooling. 
we have churches. There are there are so many of these the vestiges of the old order that still exist. They might be weak, they might be fragile, but then our goal, our objective should be, you know, after arguing on Twitter for a while, go out there and strengthen those institutions. If you can't, if if it's too formidable for you in the place that you live, I guarantee you can do it in the walls within the walls of your own home. And I know that that's not going, you know, this is how these things come about. It's not just one seismic shift with one individual alone. There has to be a level of, you know, people call it infrastructure, but there has to be a fertile soil that exists underneath this. This is how these things happen. And if you aren't cultivating the soil where you're at, you're, you know, it's, it's not enough. It will never be enough. And so I think that that's, Maybe those of us on the right, and I, I love arguing on Twitter. I do it way too much. But the most important thing that I do is, you know, is raising my children, loving my wife, saying my prayers at the end of the day, being a good neighbor, and getting involved in strengthening these little touch points that exist all around me in my respective sphere. That, to me, is is more far more important than, than arguing with Ben Shapiro. Yeah, no, I... Absolutely agree with this. And yeah, it's, you know, when when there when the macro game is, is laid out the way it is and, you know, you saw what happens, you know, when you take up the pitchforks, you know, it's just not strategically not a very good idea for people on our side to be to be engaging in that in any way. Um, yeah, it's you kind of have to build it from the from the micro level, especially at the level that, you know, is invisible to the regime. Like if you are a good neighbor, if you live a, a good, decent life, if you, you know, educate your children in, in the spirit of, of, of your beliefs, uh, that's not necessarily on the radar. You know, you, a, a lot of the stuff um, that's, you know, visible and even like irritating to the regime is, uh, like you said, just arguing on Twitter. I mean, I see, I, I see the irony in, in this podcast, but still, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a good rally point. I don't say, I'm not saying that, you know, having this content out writing and, and producing content is a bad thing to do, but it's definitely not like the thing that's going to change. It does help rally people. It does help kind of, you know, it's like a flare in, in the night and like, okay, we're, where where's my where are my people <laughs> and uh, and it it helps, uh, but like you said, you know, just loving your children, you know, doing things with your hands. I know this is this is like crazy, you know, hippie stuff, but you know, just just going out there, you know, learning a skill. And I, I'm not saying everyone should be working in the trades, but you know, it's good to to learn how to survive. Like uh, my husband's like a, I don't know, like a survival and, and bushcraft specialist that wasn't on the list of things that I was looking for, but it's, it might come in handy. So I think it's really cool. Uh, and yeah, he's a great fisherman and all this type of stuff. Like these things are good and they're good because they put you in contact with um, you know, just a, the reality of, of being a human creature on the planet Earth. Uh, and these things are just indispensable, like being a mother, just like mm-hmm. you. I, I really don't feel like I was, you know, complete as a as a being uh, before I had my child. And I'm not just saying this from like a weird ideological thing. Like I really didn't know what was up uh, until, you know, I, I could have that connection with with another being and. You know, there are just things that people have been doing for thousands of years, millennia, even more, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and, you know, they're, they're still essential now. And I feel like, um, and they're essential in ways that are not reducible to argument. They're not, mm-hmm. you can't necessarily write an essay 
about, you know, how great it is to be able to light a fire in the forest. Maybe you can, but you know, you know what I mean? It's just, just, just a sensory embodied thing about doing things in reality. That's just not, you know, it's hard to convey on Twitter or something like that. So um, yeah, I feel like a, a lot of these ingredients are, will go into just, you know, preparing yourself for whatever comes. There's no, no better way of, of managing whatever comes. It's just, you know, being a solid human being for yourself and the people around you, reliable and good. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being on Twitter and sharing. I, I, what, I, what I love about your podcast, what I love about, you know, the, our sphere on Twitter is it gives me inspiration. It also helps me find different ways to analyze the problems that I'm seeing around me. It helps me understand also, like you brought up, is that, you know, we're not just standing alone here um, and that there are, there are ideas and there are ways to examine problems that haven't been, exa- haven't been really given the oxygen they deserve that could very well improve our condition. But I, you know, going to what you said is, and, you know, there's really no greater calling than being a parent, especially being a mother. Um, and I, I think that there's the, the aspect of it that I think is really important to remember is that, you know, we don't organize societies around ideas, <laughs> you know, we don't. And they, I love ideas. I love them. And I, I, I think it, they're great to, they're great to share and they're great to debate about. But at the end of the day that we don't organize ourselves around these things, we, it's the things that we don't think about that we naturally do day in and day out. Somebody paid a price for that. You know, I don't know when, but one of your ancestors at some point paid a price. Many of your ancestors paid a price to fine tune these things to get to the point where you didn't have to think about them. And I think it's something to remember is that these, these traditions, customs, mores that we all have and that we've inherited, when we lose them, it deranges us. And so I think that that's where the balance is important in, in understanding that, you know, it might just be building a fire out in the woods. And, but one day you might be cold and wet and hungry and building that fire in the woods will feel like a life changing experience. And I've been there you know, and it's why those things, when they come in handy, when they come through, there's almost a, I mean, it can almost be a transcendental experience, uh, when these things serve their purpose in the best way they can. And that's why being a parent, that's why you're almost like cultivate. It's almost like being a, it's like you're cultivating the soil and that act in and of itself, although it can put food on your table, it also nurtures your soul and makes you a more virtuous person. I think that that's what was always in, you know, baked in the cake with Americans. There was something coming from this agrarian culture that we all came from originally here that gave a level of virtue that was very, very enriching to our our bodies and our minds and our souls. And I think that, I think that if we can get that connection back, if we can, if we can connect the ideas that we have, the impressions that we have to those invisible structures that we, that we need to cultivate and protect, I think that we'll be able to get out of this um, we're not going to get out of it in like great shape. I think we're going to be pretty beat up. It's a knock, knockout, drag down fight. But at the end of the day, I think that we will, we will succeed because I think that that's, I think that there's a lot more to us and to the world that we've inherited than we realize. I think our goal should be to rediscover those things. And I think integrating those into our lives, I think will give us the strength we need to move forward. Yeah. And, you know, your your point about our ancestors, I kind of keep reminding myself that, you know, even even if, you know, I, I encounter hardship in my life, it really 
probably pales in comparison to all of the, you know, the, the hardship that my ancestors had to, to go through just so I could exist here and just to, you know, pass along the, the traditions of, uh, of, of my family. And I mean, for my family, it's a bit more complicated because we're just like literally from, from everywhere under so many traditions that, you know, with communism as well, you know, I might need to read some books to figure out what our traditions are. Uh, but yeah, that's just, that's just Eastern Europe for, for you. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those, you know, a lot of these traditions are tied into kind of these these transformational experiences as well. Like, you know, I, I talked about motherhood. That's, you know, an obvious transformational experience. Uh, and it's one of those experiences where you really don't know who you'll be after after it happens. You can't really model, you know, what it's going to be like, who you're, who you're going to be. But there's a lot of things that are traditional that are kind of these um, kind of gateway rituals, um, you know, initiations and things like that that are actually transformational that we've we've really kind of gotten rid of at this point. So it's not, um, we, we don't really have, you know, male initiation. We don't really have, you know, female initiations or, you know, th- th- those, those steps where, you know, like even, even in the life of a woman, you'd, you'd have kind of a maiden phase, you'd have a motherhood phase, and then you have a kind of a, a crone old lady, you know, matriarch phase, depending on which region you're from. Um, and all of that is kind of out the window. And then we're just kind of these uh, producer consumers tied to the market and, you know, you know, are you able to produce? Are you able to consume? You know, oh no, that person there is able to produce less and consume less than you. Oh, that's inequality. You know, we need to make them consume more. And it's just all, this is the whole, the only benchmark, the only like spreadsheet that we're all measured up against. And it's an important one. I don't want anyone to starve, you know, consuming foods and, and shelter is great, but there's like mar- the marginal return on an additional unit of producing, consuming starts to fade after a while. Like there is more to life than that. And I feel like that's, that's the biggest thing we've lost. And a lot of people just really, they don't know what it would feel like not to be like this. You know, they, they didn't go through those transformational experiences. They're like 45 in their, you know, cubicle apartments, working a weird job and they're feeling like shit. And they really don't know why, you know, why am I in this phase? Why am I in this situation? How would I have felt if I was in a different situation? It's just I don't know. It's it's um, not to not to black pill, but I feel like it's it's hard to communicate why this stuff is important to people because it's not it's not going to be in like a New Yorker article. It's mm-hmm. not, that's not where it, where it comes from. No, yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, motherhood's a great example of that. Is you know you you had no idea what it was until it happened, right? And and yeah. now you know I imagine I you know not to speak for you I imagine you feel like a completely different person after yeah. having your child I mean I feel the same way I can't even I tell this to my family the young young people in my family who ask me about marriage because I've been married for a hot minute and have my kids and I just say you know I don't even know what it was like I can't even remember what it was like to not have my family <laughs> you know and I don't and and the part you know the point is is that I wasn't really a complete person and I could feel that you know, I can feel that now. And this, this transformational experience is natural. It's good. And I think that the more that we can, and this is where the politics come in. This is, I think this is the proper role of politics is there's, there are these pre-political issues and institutions that are under assault that need to be protected because they are natural, because they are good. And because human beings without them are not going to be able to live lives of meaning and purpose and, you know, ever find, in my opinion, like 
happiness, the like what real happy or joy. I, I don't really like the word happiness, but maybe like the joy that comes along with being a parent, which is full of suffering. It's full of joy, though. And that's what these institutions that we have to fight to protect, that's what they offer. And, uh, you know, the, the world that without these things just will not be able to deliver to it won't be able to deliver any kind of like real benefit to people's lives. They can be completely satiated. They can be, you know, they can have every material need taken care of. But if they are missing that piece, it's it's just gone. It's it's not enough. You know, I feel like our our culture has been pushing facts and figures and statistics around the circumference of like a collapsed truth for so long. And we are and it and it causes us so much pain. <laughs> it's it's hard to watch because there's just this level of just incoherent rage and anger and despair that you see and that really gets reflected through politics. And so much of it comes down to what you brought up is that these things have been have eroded or they've been t- stolen and people feel that pain, but they don't know where to place it. And I, that's where I think, you know, and it, this is not a grand solution. I tend to believe that this is going to take a very long time. I think, you know, the, the plucky American in me wants to believe that we can just get this fixed in a generation or two and back on track. But, you know, if you think about it, many of the things that are falling, you know, that are, that are being torn asunder are things that took thousands of years to develop. You know, we're fundamentally re-altering things that took that long to, to, for us to inherit. And so I don't think that there's going to be a quick solution, but that is not to say that the things that we can do now every day, the things that we can do to build like my relationship with my children, my relationship with my neighbors, and, and really like that's where the traditions, if you don't have those traditions, actively going about and trying to reform those connections with people, getting your hands dirty, doing things that bring you a level of, of satisfaction. It could be in the gym. I mean, there's so many things, but it's really just getting out. And it's and that's where, you know, this is the fertile soil where new traditions will arise. And I think that that's something that, that we need to keep in perspective. We might not, this might take generations. I don't know how long it will take for us to get where we can feel like our society is not taking from us, but is actually enriching, like culture can thrive. Uh, but I know that we can do our part every day and that will bring a level of comfort and satisfaction to our lives. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I keep bringing up the a point that a previous guest made, um, a guy from South Africa, Conscious Caracal, shout out. Uh, he's great. That, uh, he, yeah, he's, he's awesome. Um, and he was saying that, you know, it's, you know, he, he loves living in heroic times. You know, it's, it's, you know, South Africa is, you know, about a hot minute later than, than other places. And it's, it is a genuinely dangerous situation where he lives as well. And, you know, he's had encounters, all sorts of, you know, violence and and things like that. But he feels that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's meaning giving. It's, you know, he, he knows exactly who he is. He knows who he's fighting for. He knows who his family is. He's active politically. He's active in all sorts of ways. Like he's, you know, he wakes up every morning with, you know, a huge amount of spirit, uh, to, to power him through whatever he's, he's planning that day. It's just like a, you know, he doesn't, I don't think he has any like existential crises on the horizon. Like, you know, man knows what he's doing. And I think, you know, there's, there's something to that. 
um, it's it's good to live in heroic times in, in many ways. No, it is. I think, you know, the happiest that I've ever been in my life is times when I had the least. And, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was slogging it out, trying to support a family, you know, growing family on a shoestring budget and having to be gone and, you know, going, you know, far off backwaters in the world and, and, you know, fighting under a flag and with my, with my dear friends. I mean, these are things that, you know, I look back and that was the happiest I've ever been was, was living in a time when, you know, something was demanded of me and I had commitments and my commitments I needed to honor. And I, you know, that's, that's really what it is. I, I think you could be anywhere in the world. And as, as long as you have, you have those commitments and you honor those commitments and you face them and stand up straight and do so, you know, you can find a lot of meaning there. Um, and that's, you know, every person can do that. And that's something I try to emphasize all the time on, on my account is that, you know, there are people like Blake Masters out there and, and, you know, I am very grateful for that. But there are also people like me. There are also people like my neighbor down the street. And we don't want to be dead in the water here. We have things that we can do. We have commitments to honor just as well. And I think that I think that that's how we're going to that's how we're going to move forward, <laughs> not backwards. Yeah. And, and just simply recommitting to the people in your life, which is essentially what uh, in, in many ways the 1960s robbed the boomers of and a lot of, you know, the millennial generation is this idea that, uh, you know, you're not really committed to, if you're not committed to your family, if you're toxic, leave them. You know, if, you're, if your wife is, you know, whatever, too, too old, leave her. If your husband's, you know, you could get a better model, leave them. You know, just recommitting to the people, the institutions, the locations, the thing in your, it's, it's quite simple. It's just a decision that you have to make and stick with it. Um, it's simple, but not easy. You know, these things tend to be, all of these important transformational commitments aren't easy, but they happen. You can, you can do it right now. <laughs> Commit, my friends. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, on, on, that, uh, on that inspirational note, uh, I want to ask you the question of the show. Um, the last question is always, do you have a subversive thinker, living or dead, writer, whoever you think is, is interesting that people may not have heard of, maybe they've heard of, but they're not, they, they don't know that this person is as interesting as you think they are? No, absolutely. Um, I I want to give this one. This is, you know, I have several that I really enjoy, but there's there's one thinker that I I really uh, appreciate, and I think would be very good for uh, my my friends and colleagues on the dissident right side of things, who are maybe reexamining patriotism, or maybe they've given up on on patriotism. And just because that was kind of the subject of our part of our conversation today, I think I would like to introduce them to Mel Bradford or he goes by, he went by M.E. Bradford as well. Um, he was a Southern traditionalist uh, who, you know, his demise, I guess you could say, when he, he was very much, it, it, it's nice because it had like a little layer of history is the neoconservatives kind of purged him from, they, they kind of squashed any of the uh, higher ambitions that he had. And you really see this tension between that traditionalist, maybe older right that existed in this country and this neoconservative, you know, quote unquote, right, that really altered the the makeup of, you know, the, con the, the conservative movement in this country. And so Mel Bradford is his name. And there's a book he wrote that I think would be really beneficial to everybody to take a look at. It's called A Better Guide Than Reason. And he focuses a lot on where he 
he goes against the grain in saying that, you know, the Declaration of Independence was like asserting certain propositional truths. You know, he shies away from that platonic, uh, you know, reading of the Declaration of Independence and goes more into a, you know, uh, he goes into a more rooted and embodied perspective that it didn't just emerge from good ideas or nothing. It emerged from soil, from a people, from a time locked in by history. I think this is really important for Americans to read today. I recognize that the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence might seem slightly toothless or irrelevant today. But I think for my friends on the dissident right to take a look at the parallels between what he is talking about in this book and about the the time that we are living in, when certain things, there are certain questions that are finally being asked, when we might be able to go in a new direction as a nation, you might find that there's a lot of parallels between the founding generation and between our generation today that might you might be able to find some inspiration there. So I'd like to introduce the audience who hasn't heard of Mel Bradford and A Better Guide Than Reason to take a look. I think they'll find a lot there. Yeah, that's an excellent recommendation. Not been recommended before. I didn't know about him. Um, and I think it's, it pairs well, I think, with reading um, Albion Seed, which is quite a, a an interesting, uh, like, uh, um, I don't know, red pill, I guess. I don't know what color of pill it was for me, but just understanding kind of what the the the, the mores, the culture of the founding stock of the of the United States was, um, it's quite uh, it's quite interesting. And it's you know like if you would have put uh, you know a, a village of Romanian peasants, you know it, it would have been a completely different society in so many ways. Uh, it's just you know it's just very very different type of of lifestyle, uh, and I feel like. It's it's clear from the book, and this is a book by by David Hackett Fisher, um, that you know it's a lot of the things that are very specific to American culture, uh, you know, originated in these uh, in these first enclaves, um, and it just couldn't have been any other way. And it's it is very like specific to kind of this this Anglo ethnos and um, and yeah their uh, their traditions and and customs. So yeah, I think that's a, that's that's a really uh, it's an interesting. Um, I don't know parallel. At least I think it is. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't read Mel Bradford, but I, I'll I'll add him to our our reading list. Excellent. Yeah. No. I think it's really beneficial. I think folks would find that there's, you know, we are not the same people. I think that's the first thing. We're not the same people that existed then. We might have some of that ancestry, but we aren't the same people. But I I think the question to ask is then who are we? Are we a people? I believe we still are. And I think that what matters most is to understand what makes us a people today. And I think that that will give us a kind of anchoring that we need. So, excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Lee. This was uh, this was lovely. As I as I was sure it's going to be, and it was. Um, uh, is there outside of the Substack, which is ruins.substack.com, um, there any other place that people can find you that people should go to? Um, you know, I, I kind of maintain a fairly low profile. Yeah, you can check me out on on ruins. Uh, I call it the ruins of Corotamon, and but it goes by ruins.substack.com. Um, I'm working on a couple projects too that I'll probably be releasing there. I'm doing a an analysis of Apocalypse Now, and nice. I've got another one coming out to in this week. And so stay tuned for that. Excellent, excellent. And on Twitter at partisan underline O. Is it? Yep, zero? that's right. Yep. Partisan yeah, okay. underscore Z. Oh, yep. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Lee. This was lovely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Alex. It was a pleasure.
If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 